Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Scottonomics episode eight. Um, tonight, we're going to be delving into the economics of the climate crisis. And we've got an absolutely fantastic uh, interview and um, hour to spend with you ahead. But first thing, as always, is for me to welcome my co-host, Kieran Van Sweden. Hi, Kieran. How are you doing? I'm good. And it's, it's a bit more of an interesting evening today because I have um, a, a lady with me who's filming me and who has been filming me all day. So, um, Jay, would you like to say hello? Hi. <laughs> hey, hey, hello, Jay and Karen. how are you doing? So, so what's this all about then? So, um, as you know, I'm involved in the Pay to Pollute campaign and Jay is making a film all about that. So we've been down in Torrey, uh, which is in the south of Aberdeen, highlighting what's going on down there at St Fittick's Park in Torrey. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been quite a busy day so far. Um, it's been a busy weekend, William, because we had the SNP conference this weekend and I'm happy to report that my job guarantee resolution, written along with Chris Hanlon and Cameron um, Archibald, has been passed by conference. So we are going to have, hopefully soon, a job guarantee pilot happening in Scotland. Excellent. Congratulations and well done. And I managed to grab this when I was watching on... I managed to grab this when I was watching on Sunday. Um, oh, <laughs> yes. There you go. So it was just a little bit of a screenshot of you um, speaking remotely um, at the conference. And I said, really well done for getting that through. It's going to be really interesting to see that pilot. Yes, yes. So hopefully it will happen soon. And it will be, um, as, as, the, as the Prime Minister likes to say, uh, shovel ready or oven ready. Um, for the day that we become independent. Fantastic. Have you any idea of the, the type of the, I suppose, the size of trial that we'd be looking at when that when that happens? Is it something kind of small or is it going to be a little bit bigger? Any any thoughts on that? Um, I, I really no idea, William. I guess it's going to depend on what the, the uh, Scottish government would be prepared to spend on it as well. So, um, yeah, that's that's going to really dictate how big it's going to be. Interesting. Well, hopefully we'll get there soon. But before we get there, we're definitely going to speak uh, a little bit more about the climate crisis. Now, this is a, a key um, topic for, for you and I, and it comes up in so many of our discussions with economists. And I know you were really keen to speak to someone who, um, is it fair to say, knows more than, certainly knows more than most, but he really is one of the authoritative figures when speaking about the climate crisis, isn't he? Yeah, and, and what I say in this interview as well, what I really like about Steve Keen is he really is a scientist economist. You know, he really is prepared to say, I didn't know that before and now I know something different and I'm prepared to think differently about something, which is really, I, I like the way that he, despite the fact that he's a really smart guy, he's able to suppress his ego and really take a scientific approach to eco economics. Yeah, the, the wise man is the man who knows he knows nothing 
or something like that. <laughs> and Steve's definitely in that, isn't he, in terms of learning um, from all the other environments. Uh, th this is a fantastic interview. I think we're really, really lucky to, to have him. Um, uh, Karen and I were really excited when we got to speak to him. We did a full 45 minutes. I really hope you enjoy this uh, interview. And please do drop in your comments, uh, any questions or thoughts as we head into the interview. I really hope you enjoy this. Karen, are you ready for it? Yeah, and here is Professor Steve King. Steve King, thank you very much for joining us on Scotonomics. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. The first place I wanted to start was I've listened and watched you on various podcasts this year, and one of the most striking things from your interviews is that often when you give an answer, the hosts seem baffled at your response. Now, I mean, you're debunking modern day economics, giving really good examples. It's all really clear and concise, but it just seems fundamentally difficult for even very intelligent people to grasp some of the things that you're saying. How do you cope with this, considering you've had this for like probably near on five decades? And then secondly, why is it so difficult for people to understand the way that you're looking at economics? It's, it is difficult to cope with because um, my, my approach to economics becomes second nature to me now. And, uh, and I'm lying it out with using a set of logical foundations for it. And I've built the software to it, be able to express those foundations clearly. And it's, you know, so it, it's become, you know, my way of life is thinking that way. And then I'll strike people and then their mind is caught up with a, with a, a, a virus, an intellectual virus that, redirects their thinking in one direction or another. And that applies if I'm talking to a Marxist, they can't help going back to the labor theory of value. If I'm talking to a neo, somebody who's been trained in conventional economics, they can't help going back to supply and demand. And they try to put everything inside those existing mental frameworks that I know are both wrong. And, and so that's, that's the real challenge for me. And a large part of it is often trying to put uh, my understanding in their framework. Um, and I've done that just recently when I was talking about how the uh, mainstream thinks that a government deficit is a bad idea because it drives up interest rates. When you look at their model, uh, and that's the you know, intersecting supply and demand stuff, what it shows is the government coming into the market for bonds is adding to the demand for bonds, and you've got a rising supply, uh, demand for money, and you've got a rising supply curve. You've got to offer a higher interest rate for people to be willing to offer more money. So if you add the demand, you drive up the interest rate and then the government might get its spending done, but that higher interest rate crowds out the private sector. And, and that's literally, I'm pretty much quoting Mancure on that front. That's what anybody who's done a you know polit PPE course somewhere and therefore is potential prime minister, um, that's what they believe. That's what, they, that's what their mental framework is. Well, I go through my own model and I show using the, the uh, double entry bookkeeping systems that I do and so on that the government deficit actually adds to the supply of money. And then I can come back to the way they think now and say, well, it's not the demand curve that's shifted because of the deficit, it's the supply curve and it's shifted out. So the deficit is, according to your model, will reduce interest rates and increase private sector activity. Um, so if it's, I've got to find a way can, that I can express it, but I want to get away from their way of thinking because the, the problem from their point of view is how do they know whether to put this on the demand curve or the supply curve? And that then is the, the, all the ancillary assumptions they have. It isn't just this, you know, one little intersecting 
supply and demand curve for money. They've got their model about how money is created, which is the government can control the money supply. Uh, they've got their arguments leaving banks out of the whole system. You've got an entire forest of assumptions. And once you knock any one of them down, the whole forest collapses. It's a house of cards more than a forest. Um, so it's it's a real, real challenge. And, and people don't want to have their mental framework destroyed. You said a really uh, succinct thing uh, in one of your podcasts, which was, if, um, if the pandemic is a dress rehearsal for the climate crisis, then the human race has failed the audition. And yeah. I, I, I fear that we are uh, failing the audition very much. So um, the IPCC report has just come out. It has given humanity a code red. What do we need to do, Steve? What do we need to do? I mean, I'm not going to blame mainstream economics completely here or even the coal interest. Again, it comes down to humanity. Uh, we, uh, we, our social systems are built on a belief structure and a, and, and a technology as well, the social structure. And when we have a successful system, and that, that it, then that it's dominant and growing like the Roman Empire at some point, or you know the uh, the empire that's, the Teotihuacans in Mexico and so on, um, there are strong interests that want to maintain that system, even if some people can say that it's unsustainable in various ways. And it seems in humanity we we never we have never said, oh dear, if we keep on doing this, we're going to destroy the foundations of our society. Let's change direction and preserve our society. Instead, they've preserved, pushed it to the, to the point past the breaking point, and then it collapses, and then you know, the society either disappears. So Egypt is now you know, a place you go as a tourist to take photographs of, of monuments. You no longer you don't go to pay tribute to the pharaoh. Um, and and we, get, we get a breakdown in the movement to a new location. So this is something we've always done. And, and now we're doing it in a context of where there is no... We can't, like, we could move out of Egypt into um, Palestine uh, 4,000 years ago. We can't move, well, not, we can't move from Earth to Mars as easily as, as you could escape from the collapse of Egypt to somewhere else in the, on, around the Mediterranean. So uh, that is our, our problem. And as I said, it's not just capital, it's not just mainstream economics. Having said that, mainstream economics has played a huge role in saying this is trivial, don't worry about it. And, and consequently, if we'd had a more realistic economics, it's quite possible we could have said 200 years ago, if we keep on doing this, we're going to have problems. And 100 years ago, they realized, well, we really have to speed up, uh, you know, uh, changing our energy source. And we also need to constrain our population, constrain inequality. We could have made those decisions with a more realistic model of how our society functions. Uh, but the, so the role I see that neoclassical economics has played there is utterly destructive because it's continued encouraging us to push this exponential process on a finite planet. And we're now living with a collision between an exponential process and a, a horizontal line. Um, I, you'll know in Scotland that we are hosting the COP26 um, mm. in November. And, uh, you know, I'm, you, you also know that I'm involved in a, a court case yeah. against the Oil and Gas Authority as well. So there's a disconnect between what our supposed ambitions are and what's actually happening, which is mm. the UK government are giving out licenses and permitting people to carry on drilling North Sea uh, oil out of the North Sea. The, the other thing that Scotland is very keen on doing is um, being a world leader in renewables. Now, I was mm. listening to your interview, interview with Simon Michel, 
Um, yeah. And he's very knowledgeable about really what the realistic um, targets of that would be, because obviously we're limited in resources. And a couple of things he pointed out are neodymium and copper. Mm-hmm. They're massively used within uh, wind turbines. And there are lots of other things, uh, minerals, that just are going to run out or are going to be so inaccessible, it's just not going to be practical to try and get them. How can we really meet that ambition, I wonder? And that's my, I mean, I'm like, I'm, I know that I'm an economist, unlike most economists who think they're also meteorologists, uh, uh, you know, paleontologists, weather forecasters, et cetera, et cetera, and they can use their own silly models anywhere on the planet. Um, so I'm, I'm going with my engineers tell me. And, 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 and so that, that's in Simon is probably the person who's got the, the, the strongest handle on the physical elements we have to use for our current manufacturing system and how expanding part of the system, like the, you know, more, more solar and more wind, is going to involve <laughs> using more of the available elements we currently use than we actually have available on the planet or, or easily accessible on the crust. And looking at it, the only, uh, the only other way is to say, well, can we do something else like nuclear? And a lot of my engineer colleagues and who support me on Patreon are, are fans of nuclear. Uh, and, and some of them argue you can scale nuclear up fast enough to, uh, to produce uh, the energy we'd be replacing from, car- from carbon-based systems over 10 to 15 years. I, you know, I'm sitting between the two groups. Um, my feeling is, like a lot of the arguments about nuclear, uh, assume technologies like the thorium-based reactors, for example, that we still haven't built a working prototype of. Um, the 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 nuclear power, the uranium-based systems we currently have, uh, we could build them, but I, I, I still can't see us avoiding a crunch where we have to reduce our energy consumption. Uh, because I think we're already putting a point where damage to the climate is becoming overwhelming. And the scariest one uh, for some time has been the disappearance of Arctic summer sea ice. Uh, That's bad enough, but it appears on recent data that we're also seeing a slowdown in what's, you you know the term of the AMOC? No. Atlantic, okay, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, uh, also called the Thermohaline Circulation. And people colloquially know it as the Gulf Stream. So the you know, so the Gulf Stream we you know brings warm water from the uh, equatorial band of the Atlantic Ocean north along the past the coast of America onto Europe and back down again as cold water. And it's a circulation system. It actually the whole circulation links the North to the South Pole, uh, and it's all driven by temperature differences and salinity differences. And recent research is saying that the section which goes in the Atlantic, so the Atlantic up to the uh, um, uh, northern Europe, is slowing down dramatically. And if it does, the heat transfer that that implies, which warms Europe by something of the order of three, three degrees Celsius, could disappear. Now, economists will say, oh, that's good. That's going <laughs> to counteract some global warming. That's going to improve the GDP. I'm not joking. I wish I was. Okay? These idiots, I mean, these overstretched idiots believe they can apply their model to areas that they have no knowledge about whatsoever, which is climatology, you know, the, the yeah. dynamics of the planet. And, and they say, okay, we've got this, we found, a, we, we found a pathetic relationship between GDP and temperature. 
So if you have an increase in temperature, it'll cause a pathetic change in GDP. And if we go the other way, we'll get a we'll slightly re reduce the pathetic increase uh, in temperature and therefore make GDP better. So losing AMOC was a good idea. And that's a quote from Richard Toll recently. Um, and also, I'm afraid to say, Gerard Wagner in a recent paper, that, you know, losing AMOC would be a positive for the climate. I mean, get out of here. You guys, you are not planet designers. You are not slutty Bartfast, okay? You didn't design the fjords of Norway, if you know your Douglas Adams. And here you are pretending you can design a planet. Well, you know, get out of this market and show you how you can design your economy in the first place because your models of the economy didn't work to predict the financial crisis. How on earth do you think you can predict the consequences of shutting down a, a major section of the Earth's climate on the economy? It, it is Steve, it's Steve, such I think, arrogance. I think the more sapphoid beetle brocks when it comes to the arrogance. Um, <laughs> if, if, if you know your hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. I've read that if the Gulf Stream breaks down, the west coast of Scotland will not be habitable. Yeah, and this, this is like, if you look at the scientists actually saying, I'll just finish on this point and go to the next question. Jim Hansen looked at that in 2016, and he said the breakdown of the AMOC uh, also occurred during the Eemian period, uh, back in you know, the, the paleontological history of the planet, and that generated superstorms, which were throwing you know, boulders, uh, you know, 10 metre high boulders, onto 10 metre high cliffs on the coast of Ireland uh, and implies waves of 40 to 60 foot uh, as a common event during storms. Now, if Atlantic storms like that start coming out of this, then, you know, a couple of waves and it could be good by Holland. And I don't just mean, you know, um, a couple of hundred people dying. I mean, the whole damn place finding itself a few metres under sea level uh, instantly overnight. And, and this is the sort of thing we're playing with. And you don't toy with forces like this because if we shut down AMOC and find that it was a bad idea, we can't restart it. It's a couple of points. It's this um, completely ignoring the idea of a tipping point that um, a lot of economic models just continue to just, just assume that you can continue to measure and you can continue mm. to progress and not decide that something so cataclysmic happens that your yeah. model doesn't work. You know, to, to solve a total climate breakdown, I think we need to fundamentally reshape our economics and our society. And I think that attempting to do that within this kind of neoliberal framework is a bit like flicking a pea at a charging rhino. Would, would you agree? And, and how do we look at this uh, way of managing our economy completely differently so that we do avoid these cl uh, climate crises? Well, I, I don't think we are going to avoid them, unfortunately. I think it's inevitable we're going to strike them. Um, but if we were to do it, then we would have to see ourselves as constrained by the capacity of the biosphere to absorb the energy uh, that we're taking out of the biosphere and, and where we're dumping the waste. And we're not, we've, we've never done that. In fact, the, the neoclassicals have made that a swear word. You're a neo-Malthusian, you know, that sort of thing, abusing anybody who sees any potential for limits to growth. But as you said, Simon's you know, excellent presentation on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, we are actually at the limits of many of those resources and even trying to scale up you know, solar or wind power is going to exhaust the existing supplies very rapidly. And then you say, well, if you've done that and we, we can't do any more, what do we do? Well, the thing is you consume less. And that, that I think is only possible if we have a sense of rationing of our consumption. And you can't ration the poor because the poor are already, um, you know, very close to the, the breadline. And this is why we saw the impact uh, of uh, 
the diesel tax that uh, Macron brought in under the cover of uh, carbon, you know, a, a, a global warming policy, causing an instant revolt by the working class and, and self-employed in France because they couldn't afford the extra cost of diesel. So the only way we can do the rationing is if the impact of the rationing is opposed on the rich. And that is the last thing we've ever done under neoliberalism. It's always a case of, you know, trickle-down economics, uh, which I say is actually, it's actually a French term. It sounds for trickle-down. Uh, and that's what we've done. Well, you can't do it anymore. You've got, you've got trickle the top. You've, you've got to make the rich pay for it. And, and if you do rationing of carbon, which is one thing I'm, I'm working on, uh, then I would like to bring in a system, a, a dual currency system, where everything had a carbon price as well as a money price. We were paid, we received universal carbon credits, effectively on a daily basis, uh, from the uh, central bank running at the average per person. So everybody gets the average for their country, which means that 95% would get more than they need, more than they use. And the top 5% would need to buy carbon credits off the poor because otherwise they would not be able to maintain their consumption. Something like that, would, which would uh, f force the burden of the rationing onto the rich and redistribute in favor of the poor while it might also reduce our overall consumption. I think something like that is necessary uh, there's, there's no way we're going to get there through market systems. Carbon taxing, carbon pricing is not going to do it. All those things are going to fail. And that is one reason that some of the oil lobbyists and coal lobbyists support it, because they know it will never happen. It's time for, for radical change. Um, I wanted to ask you something specific about the um, Scottish Government, and I wonder what you felt about this. The, the Scottish Government launched an industry-led strategy that looks to drive profitability, responsibility and sustainable growth. The Scottish Government loves that phrase, sustainable growth. Um, and this is in the food and drink industry. It wants to double the size of the industry to become a 30 billion turnover industry by 2030. So use, and that will all be, all be primarily from exports. So using this as an example, do you think these kind of growth strategies for industries, not just in Scotland, but across the globe, can really ever be responsible and or sustainable? No, not we, we could have been responsible, sustainable fifty years ago, or seventy years ago. Okay, um, it, it would have been f feasible to um, imagine that sort of increase. But we are we are now like in compared to the limits to growth, which is the the last intelligent document written um, about about climate and economic dynamics was the limits to growth. It's all been stupid stuff since then by neoclassicals. Uh, but they argued that we could have a sustainable future, uh, but that involved constraints on population, constraints on income distribution, uh, and and a, a rapid shift over to renewable energy, et cetera, et cetera. It, it involved us with tapering to so that the pressure we put on the planet reached a maximum level and, and didn't therefore degrade the biosphere. Uh, so this whole idea of growth, particularly when you say it's export-driven growth, I mean, every country in the world is trying to achieve export-driven growth. They're all putting in targets that collectively can't be met. And so it isn't just Scotland wants to you know, double the size of their industry, so does everybody else. Well, you can't all do it. And if you do all try to do it, you can only do it by degrading the planet even faster. So I think those things are delusional. How about this one from the UK government and their attempt to end the climate crisis? Uh, the UK government recently announced a 15 billion retail bond called the Green Savings Bond. 
Now, ask savers to give an amount up to 15 billion to the government to then pass on to green projects that they will choose. Now, I've got a whole heap of issues with this, but I wonder what your thoughts were on this type of approach to funding our way to net zero. Well, for a start, uh, if you if the government sells bonds to the non-bank publics public, uh, that is actually can taking money out of the public sector, out of individuals' bank accounts and handing it over to the government. That is actually reducing the money supply. Now, that is one of the reasons war bonds were sold in the 1940s. It wasn't because the government needed the money to buy the guns. It was because by having the private sector. Uh, use their money to buy bonds rather than goods and services, it reduced the demand for goods and services and left more of the industrial capacity of the country for the war effort. Uh, so if you want to do this, what you should be doing it to is to reduce private consumption. Now, that's not why it's being done. They actually think they're funding these, these uh, green projects. The green projects could be funded by the government running a deficit and issuing bonds to cover it. There's no need for them to do it otherwise. So I think this also falls back into the, the same neoliberal mindset that the government has to borrow off the private sector to, to, to get the money it needs. The reality, and that's why I built my Minsky software to illustrate this stuff very easily, the government deficit, the government is a money creator. And if it needs to uh, create the money necessary to finance enormous amounts of green purchases, then it can create that money by running a deficit that actually you know, buys the, the green, green goods off the, off the private sector. You know, enables that construction to be done by the private sector out of profit. Uh, it doesn't need to then sell bonds to the private sector to finance it. So um, again, it's all this wrong-headed thinking, uh, and we, we think we've got our thinking about money wrong, uh, about government uh, spending wrong, about banks wrong, and about climate wrong. And we're trying to go, go forward with sustainable growth. Well, yeah, good luck. Yeah, I think you, you have to be wary about adjectives in front of the word growth. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's always going to be a concern. The other thing I wanted to bring to attention to our audience as well is that you wrote a paper last year um, about the uh, Nord houses work. Mm. Um, and I, I was frankly shocked when... <laughs> oh, um, so was I. ...the details of it. Um, it was it was incredible to me that any grown up, <laughs> never mind someone who's not necessarily got a science background, any grown up could manage to think that you can work inside when the planet's warmed up by six degrees. I know, and this this is what strikes me. I mean, the level of delusion these people have is just breathtaking, and like this is why I think it's insulting to engineers to have this lot regarded as hard-nosed thinkers. There, there is, they, they have complete fantasies. So that one of the fantasies is the roof will protect you from climate change. Uh, we'll tell that to the people in Germany whose houses are washed away recently. You know, your roof saved you. You're not, you're not really dead. Um, and, 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 and then we're, and like, you know, factories with water in them, that's okay, you can use the water for some other purpose. Yeah, sure. Um, it's an incredible unrealism. So first of all, they think that you know having a roof over your head will prevent you suffering from climate change. Then they think the current temperature and, and GDP relationship across the planet can predict the impact of global warming. And just like most recently, this new paper came out by uh, a guy called Dietz and also Gono uh, Wagner, whom I, I had some time for until this paper because he has published stuff criticising the equilibrium thinking of neoclassical economics. Well, he's now come out with this classic equilibrium thinking paper trying to cover tipping points 
And they can, I can now, I'm waiting for some neoclassical to tell me, oh, you say we don't consider climate point, giving points, but look at what, uh, uh, Dietz and, 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 and Wagner, 2021, that covers tipping points. Yeah, sure. Uh, look, I've been reading the, the background paper of this, and this is just new, new information. They value the non-market effects, so things you don't actually pay money for, you know, like uh, being alive and, and having a forest to go and visit and uh, you know, a view that's worth looking at, et cetera, et cetera. They, they say they value that using another quadratic. And the quadratic has their willingness to pay. What are you willing to pay to preserve the economy, the environment, for your, you know, exogenous enjoyment of the, of the environment? Well, they have a, a loss function using a quadratic. And the level at which they say the damages is 100% of GDP, get this, it's a 17.68 degrees Celsius increase in temperature. So they're saying... 17.68 degrees increase. Now, how the effing did they manage to get this bloody number? Go on inside and check it. And the reason is they're using a quadratic. And they calibrated the quadratic. This is really technical, sophisticated stuff, you know, the sort of stuff that a child who's just learned about what a quadratic is in year five could do uh, with the whole range of complicated econometrics built around it. But this is the five-year-old bit. And a five-year-old, I want to, you know, delay going getting into kindergarten, go back to kindy to learn something, kid. Um, they calibrated this quadratic, so it gave you a 2% loss of uh, GDP at 2.5 degree warming. Now, 2.5 degrees is already past the 2 degree tipping point that Stefan and co have said in 2018 is probably as far as you'd want to go in Tim Linton. They're saying 2.5 will cause a 2% damage to the GDP. Now, to get that, that therefore means that if your coefficient for a quadratic uh, is A times X squared, the A in that case is 0.32%, okay? And therefore, to get that being equal to 100% of the economy, you need a temperature increase of 17.68 degrees. That's where they got the number from. And you think, again, it's juvenile. This is, and this is the basis of people giving advice to governments about how to cope with climate change. If you asked a scientist what temperature would absolutely guarantee the extinction of all macropods on the planet, they'd probably say about eight or 10 degrees. You know, at that point, probably every, I may say 12, you know, every, every large scale life form would probably be driven extinct by it. And these guys are saying, Bill, if, I'll give you actually, how much of the economy would be left at 12 degrees, according to these guys? Uh, let's see. A 12 degree increase, uh, we'd still have 54% of the current economy. Uh, was there any humans on the planet? We'd all be extinct, okay? There'd be no animals, okay? No agriculture worth speaking of. Everything would be on fire or underwater, uh, you know? Uh, but no, the economy would still be 50% there. I'm laughing at that, you know, because it's so ridiculous. But you're right. Mm. I mean, these people, these are people who are influencing policymakers. They are people who are in power and have the levers of power, and therefore act on this advice. Uh, you know, I, I was shocked that um, William Nordhaus had advised the IPCC. Yeah, and it is also. I mean, like the government, uh, the main government body is the inter interdepartmental uh, committee on global warming and greenhouse gases, which is something that Trump pretty much shut down and Biden has revived uh, in 2021. But when you look at what they're using, they're using fund, they're using 
uh, page, they're using dice, they're using all these neoclassical models to predict what the damage is going to be, and then coming up with the social cost of carbon. So the whole thing has been framed the way neoclassical economists think. And an essential part of that is because they believe capitalism can cope with anything, we put this back to the ideology they have of this being a, a perfect utopian system. Uh, utopia can't be destroyed, therefore climate change can't be too bad. Uh, therefore, let's assume 87% of industry will be unaffected by climate change because it happens in carefully controlled environments, otherwise known as indoors or underground. Uh, let's assume we can air condition everything, and you know, Toll has come out with that one as well. Uh, and, and let's assume that the current temperature in GDP, which is you know, a, a, a trivial changes in GDP from large changes in local temperature, that'll happen in the future as well. It's all fantasy material. And, and when people realize how they have conned themselves and then conned us. I, I hope there'll be a, a, a level of revulsion and outrage that we put up with this garbage. And then at that point, everybody has had this, you know, little um, um, brain tumor, brain virus infected into their brains. We'll get revolted by it. We can get rid of it finally. But we'll be getting rid of it in the context which we may be fighting for the survival of human society. Specific to the IPPC report. And the report said, and I'll quote, knowledge gaps remain in the integrated assessment of the economy-wide costs and benefits of mitigation in line with pathways limiting warming to 1.5%. And I just wondered what you think caused those knowledge gaps. Is it because people are off looking and using models that just have no relation to what's actually likely to happen? Well, yeah, true, because the, the models, the, near, the models the economists have generated, which are where most of these IAMs are done by economists, and even some of the ones done by scientists use the damage figures used by, revealed by economists. They've all been based on this complete fantasy um, that, you know, they're effectively equating the climate to the weather, the simplest mistake you can make, okay? And that's what the economists themselves have done, and it's been ingrained, and then all the... Uh, particularly starting with Nordhaus, like Nordhaus's first sortie into giving an empirical estimate of the impact of three degrees warming, was that a three degree warming would cause a one quarter of 1% fall in GDP compared to what it would be in the absence of warming. So zero degrees from you no know, global warming, uh, GDP would be 100 in uh, like, you know, index number value of 100 in the year 2100. Uh, uh, three degrees of warming, it'll be 99.75. Okay, uh, so and that then set the re reference for all the sorts of numbers these characters have come up ever since then. They're trying, like, it's as though you've thrown a dart and the darts hit the wall, and then you've drawn the, the drawn the bullseye around with the first dart organized. Everybody throws to come close to that hole, only the dartboard's on the other wall, the real dartboard. And, and so we're involved in this mythical. Uh, campaign to keep uh, limit limit damages on the assumptions that they're trivial, when in fact they're gigantic and they're going to come in through the other wall. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that the economic uh, academics have suffered from, um, uh, perhaps self-inflicted as well, is the siloization of their um, of, uh, economic. And it's clear to me that you have not siloed yourself. <laughs> with other economists who have gone out into the world and looked at lots of different ideas. And also what really impresses me about you is that you're prepared to say I was wrong. And that's a very scientific approach because 
we all have to think like that. We're all scrabbling around trying to make the best of the things that we do with the knowledge that we have. But yeah, you're you're very much you take a very scientific approach to what you're doing. Um, and what? How did that happen? Good question. Um, I, th I think it's it's got to be something in my own personality because I remember back at school once, like I was I wasn't the ducks of my class. I always came the best I ever came was second. I a couple of outrageously intelligent guys in my class. One of them ended up being chief chip designer for Motorola and the, the uh, director of the international, the IEEE, the main engineering unit. The other guy must have had too good of a family life and has never been seen since. But that's the sort of competition I had at school. Um, but anyway, so I was one of the brightest in the class. Uh, and the teacher asked a question and I said, I don't know, sir. And the teacher didn't hear me. Everyone said, well, you can't say that. You can't say you don't know. I said, well, I don't know. Um, so I have a capacity to admit what I don't know. Um, whereas a lot of, uh, and economics encourages the opposite. I know everything. And, 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 and the people who want to, you know, willing to make a set of assumptions to cover holes in their logic, uh, that's what economics has become dominated by. So I'm just lucky in some ways that I manage to have a personality that sort of defines me as a contrarian in that sense. And in that way, I mean, you know, you look at Tycho Brahe, uh, Galileo, Copernicus, I'm not going to put myself on, the, on those pedestals, but they are people who are able to say, there's got to be something wrong with this. And, you know, and admit that I don't understand this at the moment. Uh, I've got to find out what makes more sense. And, and that is the essence of the scientific method. So in that sense, I'm genuinely much more a scientist than I am an economist. Um, right now, would, would you describe yourself as an mmt -er? I'm, I'm, I support MMT's analysis of money, government money creation, and I've done the mathematics to support that using my Minsky software. Uh, I think MMT is a developing theory, not a complete one. Um, so they haven't incorporated credit yet, and I've done that uh, with my, again, my Minsky modeling. So I think I can enhance their understanding by including credit in there as well. And you, you have to understand money creation. So the whole, the, the essential points MMT makes are correct. The deficit creates money, it also creates reserves that are used by the banks to buy the bonds that the government issues to, to cover the deficit. But the government doesn't have to, uh, there's no borrowing going on. The government is actually just converting uh, reserves into bonds. So non-income earning assets with the banking sector into income earning assets with the banking sector. Uh, there's no limit to the capacity to do that. So all that stuff is quite correct. What they haven't yet incorporated is the role of credit and that can be done and that enhances their theories as well. That's what I'm working on for my next book, which is coming out in October. Uh, and, and then uh, they also need a, a stronger analysis of the physical economy. So there, there isn't much in the way the analysis of the physical economy in their theories yet, but that can be provided by what's done by you know, post-Keynesian, Kaliski and Shrafian economists as well. I, I wouldn't follow their advice in international trade, uh, but I would follow their advice in government deficits. And when we look at it, we, we, you therefore have a, a strong argument in favour of much more fiat money creation and much less credit money creation for a sustainable capitalist economy, if there ever is such a thing. With climate change hits, that's one of the reasons I'm in Thailand. Uh, I think in terms of food, this place is gonna suffer less damage than Europe. Um, so yeah, uh, and, and resilience is what we're leaving out of our economic thinking. And that's like the, the MMT is part of an overall fabric of a sensible description of a capitalist economy, uh, but you have to include such things as having resilience as well as uh, 
efficiency, which the neoclassicals focus on and ignore resilience, they think it's the same thing, which it's not. Uh, the, almost the opposite. Uh, like that, for example, the classic example there is, is, is intensive care beds. Okay? If you're efficient, you only have enough of the current uh, uh, demand plus two or three standard deviations. Along comes a pandemic, you need that plus 100 standard deviations. Well, sorry, you haven't got it. So if you want to be robust, you have to have far more of these beds than you need, far more of the doctors, far more of the nurses, and, and they're in training mode. And then when the crisis hits, they've got the capacity and they've got the skills. Uh, so resilience is the opposite of efficiency in that sense. Uh, and you've got to see the, the, the fabric of the production, the, the, the overall fabric of manufacturing, which is also on the fabric of the, the biosphere. Uh, thinking about the interactions between one sector and another, uh, which is the, the sort of work that the Atlas of Economic Complexity does in Harvard and, Mass and MIT. Though that's, that sort of understanding is, is what we need to integrate overall to have a proper theory. MMT is uh, the shining light in this sense that it's actually got into the public consciousness. And that's the major reason I won't criticize uh, of, of support 90% of the time because it's a true achievement to get a non-orthodox theory being discussed in the mainstream media. To finish on climate, I, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts, hopes and expectations were of uh, COP26, which of course takes place in Glasgow this year. I think you're going to have a pretty good sale of malt whiskey. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, a few other parts of the economy might do okay. And you'll have a whole lot of uh, pieces of uh, waving pieces of paper. And you might as well have Chamberlain waving one saying peace in our time. I think uh, it, it, international agreement, if you, if, you want to, if you want to start with international agreement, you're not going to get anything done. And, and, and often this is known by the, by the uh, fossil fuel lobby. They're aware of that. So they're happy to have these sorts of things happen because they know you're going to get the lowest common denominator out, if that, uh, and, and consequently you don't get any real action, any real change. Um, so I don't have any hope that they'll do it themselves, but I, I think circumstance will force us into it. But it's more likely to happen on a nation-by-nation -nation basis than at the international level. Yeah. I think that IPCC report really did seem to send shockwaves across a lot of the organisations, populations and hopefully governments stating the difference between the uh, unavoidable 1.5 degrees and the avoidable 2 degrees increase. And, and I hope that that does have, a, that, that continues a lot of momentum into the into COP. I would hope so too, but I, you know, I just think people, again, this, it's the whole same question of a paradigm or a mindset. People are still so caught up in the whole idea of sustaining growth uh, that any anything that you say about the you know the consequences will be reframed in the presents of how we can get sustainable growth out of this rather than oh shit we're going to have to go backwards. I think Kim, you and I are in agreement with that as well. I mean, in terms of in terms of how we address things, it has to be about stopping um, and not just trying to continue on a slightly kind of greener yeah. mode than we've been doing. You know, I, I feel that the global north has, has, has plundered the global south and, you know, we have, we've lived a fat life, you know, uh, off the back of the global south for a long, long time. And it's time for us to start paying back to the global south, who, whose large swathes of the global south we have made uninhabitable. Um, it's, we, we really have to be looking after the rest of humanity. And I think that, that that's going to involve some sac sacrifice 
on the Global North's part. But I, but I, I think that the Global North is potentially going to suffer out of this more than the Global South for a simple reason that the temperature, the trajectory of temperature change is more extreme the further you move from the equator. So, like, I, I, I believe me, I know what it means to be overheated here. It's 35 degrees most days in, Bang, in Bangkok. Um, that's a winter temperature. Um, 37 and more in, in summer. Um, but we're already, we're not, you're not used to that much of an overload, but it's always hot okay? and it's getting hotter. But if you're in part of the world which has uh, never been hot and suddenly has 49.6 degree temperature, your infrastructure is going to collapse. And we saw that with the little town of Lytton in, 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 in Canada, 49.6 degrees Celsius, you know, 120 Fahrenheit. Uh, which, which, which uh, you know, one day they gave a heat record, the next day they were wiped out by a wildfire. Now, uh, and then the towns in Germany washed away by those hyper floods. Uh, so the, the scale of temperature change is going to be greater in the northern hemisphere, the northern latitudes. And we may well find that having made the comfortable assumption that it's going to be the global south that pays, that the first major catastrophes may well occur in the, in the global north. And then that'll be fun to see how you react to that. We're playing with forces we don't understand. And even though you know, a left-wing progressive view and thinking it's going to, we've got to you know, make recompense to the South, we might be asking the South for aid. Steve, you've really helped us understand that a little bit more, but yeah, we have a huge amount of learning still to do. And, and, and for me, that real takeaway of um, saying to economists, you know a little bit about this, you don't know a lot about everything else. I think it's a really powerful message to take away when we start to think about climate and the debates we're having around about climate. Um, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We'd love to get you back on to talk about one of the other many things you could cover um, perhaps next year. But for the moment, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And as I said, if you want to keep in touch with my views, uh, the, my Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash profstevekane. Most of the posts, there were free access. I, I appreciate the support that I've, trying to get the ideas out as well. And Karen's one of my supporters there. And, and no, you are too, I believe. So uh, <laughs> that's right. And we'll put a link in the comments for, for, for um, being able to look at that. But thanks again, Steve. Great. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, there you go, Karen. That's the third time I've watched that it's probably maybe even the second or maybe the third time you've watched it does it still have as much of an impact when you're watching it again it impacts me more I think it impacts me much more I mean really the point that he makes about neoclassical economics being a utopian house of cards which um, uh, looks at uh, climate change as a, a change in weather or temperature um, uh, when I when I saw the paper that he wrote about Nordhaus I really was just incredibly shocked and uh, uh, really surprised at the just the stupidity of it and that it was uh, affecting thinking in high places. Yeah, that 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 was actually the note I took from the third uh, watching of it was what you said, which you know, which was these people are in positions of power, and I hadn't really thought about that. You know, I completely disagree with how they're putting all the models together and just assuming that they can look at the climate like they do the weather. But it just didn't click to me that these people are the people who are influencing uh, the decisions that are being made. Um, and it's just crazy to think that, that we've put so much reliance on the minds of some economists 
to shape the whole world, including areas, as, as Steve said, and, and you backed up there, that economists have no idea about at all. Yeah, it is really shocking and, and really scary for, for for normal people, I think, um, to to see this going on. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and, and some of the, the economists that, you know, the, the idea that Nordhaus had that somehow everything would be fine as long as you're under a roof. Um, you know, six degrees warming, even seven, de seven degrees, 17 degrees of climate, climate warming is just madness, absolute madness. Yeah, the climate is not the weather, and I yeah. think that's something that hopefully will get through to economists with all of these models, and also a lot more in the public discourse, because we still talk about global warming and this idea that the temperature is going to heat up a few degrees, and that might be that might be good for particular areas, and it's it's just a disconnect to actually what's happening when we look at climate in terms of the tipping points and the interconnectedness of the planet. That one and a half degrees is going to cause cause problems two degrees above um, pre-industrial levels is going to cause some huge issues. And, and maybe, as Steve said, that's when people will start taking it serious when these things actually happen. Do you feel the same? Do, do you feel that we need to wait till something kind of cataclysmic to happen before governments start to act? Well, you would think that what has happened this year was pretty cataclysmic. And what Steve is describing with the Gulf Stream, you know, I read about this a few years ago, and as I said, if the Gulf Stream collapses because there's too much Arctic ice melting into the sea, you're, you're looking at, a, a, you know, Glasgow turning into Antarctica. That's what you're looking at. It's, it's very scary, and I think people are not really on.